0: this is the into the wilderness podcast i am your host byron pace it is the 5th of april 2021 we're coming at you every two weeks with these long-form conversations with fascinating people from around the planet and my guest this week is simon parker he is a journalist an adventurer travel writer He has done work or still does work for The Telegraph. Um, He has this really amazing series called Earth Cycle, which is on Amazon Prime. We dive into a lot of stuff in this hour and 10, 15 minutes, from living a restless life and this need to search and discover and adventure to the decision of going to university, to do it, not to do it, how that's something that is really important, uh, and yet maybe we don't think about it enough. And and the impact on students in the last 18 months during COVID, we talk about that as well. Uh, The challenges of freelance travel writing, how travel restrictions have impacted him and and myself. Uh, He he gives us, or he recounts this amazing and epic journey uh, racing yachts around the world, and then actually both being on the yachts, where he admittedly is a useless sailor to actually racing the yachts on land from China to London over 133 days, doing 15,000 miles on his bike. And as we get to the end, he tells us more about his series on Amazon, which is Earth Cycles, which really gets into conservation and sustainability and speaking and meeting with people who are living that life. So that is what you have to look forward to on this show. But a few things before we get into it. First of all, a winner from our competition that we ran two weeks ago, which was to win the latest volume of Modern Huntsman, Modern Huntsman being our partners on this podcast. You've heard a lot from uh, different writers and editors of that publication over the last couple of years. If you wanna check them out more, head over to all the W's, modernhuntsman.com, and you can have a look at all of the merch and the publications there. But what I asked you to do is become a Patreon supporter two weeks ago. And anyone who was a past Patreon supporter or a new Patreon supporter, I would randomly select somebody and you would win a copy of Modern Huntsman. And the winner is Colin Knight. So I think, Colin, you're actually quite a a new supporter. So thank you very much for your new support. And congratulations, you win a copy of Modern Huntsman. Just reach out to me, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and I will get a copy out to you. If you have any suggestions for the show, you can also use the same email address, podcast at paceproductionsuk.com, and I will always get back to you. It might take a bit of time, but I will always get back to you, and I love hearing suggestions and what you guys are up to. And while we're talking about Patreon, if you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace, and you can have a look at the tiers that are there, and you can support the show for the price of a cup of coffee a month and help make these possible. A shout out to the top tier patrons from this month who include Richard Stevens, Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk, James Marchington, the guys at South Asher Stalking. Actually, Chris is up for an award right now. So head over to South Asher Stalking on Instagram and have a look at the award that he's up for. He needs your vote. Uh, Chris is one of the stalkers at South Asher Stalking. Josh Starling, Thomas Cameron, and Mark Zabroski, the team at Galaxy Clothing, and uh, Colin Knight, who I just mentioned, who just won the copy of Modern Huntsman. I should remind you two things. If you are a podcast listener, you get a discount on the Modern Huntsman website by using the discount code into the wilderness and you get 15% off. I think everything on the store, apart from the fine art prints, because the fine art prints are are, are linked to the actual artists themselves, but all of the actual Modern Huntsman products, you get 15% off. Absolutely worth having. So go and check out the website and use your discount code. And lastly on Patreon, I have recently put up a print. Uh, it's my own fine art print, which is Two Leaping Salmon that I photographed last year on the River North Esk, which is very close to where I live. And all Patreon supporters are going to, basically for the cost of me printing it out and shipping it to you wherever you are in the world, you have the opportunity to put your name down on a list to get one of those limited edition prints before I print the copies and actually put them up for sale. So if you didn't realize that and you're a Patreon supporter, go log into Patreon and have a look so you can look at the print and tell me if you'd like it. There are quite a lot of you already have and uh, I I need to jump on that soon. Next couple of weeks, I'm gonna get that printed and get it out to everyone and also get it up on the shop for sale. And lastly, before we jump into this interview, of course I have another competition, but it's a little bit different for this show, Um, I think I'm probably going to run it over two shows over the next month, the next four weeks in partnership with Takovas. Now, Takovas are a, well, they they make quite a lot of stuff, but primarily they make cowboy boots, Freaking amazing cowboy boots. They have been a partner on Modern Huntsman over quite a few issues. They're going to be going forward as well. And I happened to go into their store in Dallas when I was at the Dallas Safari Club convention in 2019 in February. Um, the whole modern huntsman team were there and we went over and I just felt like I was in Texas. So of course I needed a pair of cowboy boots. So we went in there and I selected myself a very fine pair of cowboy boots made out of gator skin, which were very nice, but too nice to wear out and about all the time because I didn't, I didn't want to muck them up. Uh, so I have them here. And yes, I am the guy that walks around in town with a pair of jeans and cowboy boots in Scotland. Uh, and I happened to be speaking to the the team at Tacovis, and I was telling them, hey, I actually bought a pair of your boots like a year ago and I love them. I just wish I had a pair that I could just rough it in, you know, go and cut wood and just chuck on and do my daily stuff in because it's so easy just slipping them on and off and they're really well made boots. And the team was like, oh, we've just released a new pair of boots called the, the Stockton which is exactly that it's designed as a work boot it has a vibram sole on it would you like to try them out and furthermore do you think your podcast listeners would like the chance to win a pair of course the answer to that was yes so i actually got them uh when i was still in the us i've been wearing them for the last two months now they're basically all that's been on my feet i love them they're amazing they're so well made and now you guys have the chance to win a pair. Now, unfortunately, the team can only send boots to people who are in the U.S. But don't worry, what I'm gonna do is if somebody outside the U.S. wins the boots, I will get them sent to one of the team in the U.S., one of the Modern Huntsman team, and we will ship them out to wherever you are in the world. So this is a competition open to everyone, and we're gonna make it very, very simple. I'm going to put up a post about this competition in connection with the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And you just simply have to share it, share it or comment on it, interact with that post in some way, share it on your story, on your wall, whatever. And we will randomly select somebody who has done that. So make sure that you you tag us if you're going to share or, or tag me at Barn J Pace. Uh, so that I can see that you've done it because I'll just run through everybody who's done it in four weeks time and select somebody at random and you can win a pair of Tecovis Stockton boots. Um, I will probably be posting some pictures of them anyway because I've been, I've been wearing them out and about so you can see what they look like but if you head over to tecovis.com that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, uh, check out the boots and you can find the Stockton. So you can read up all about them and see what they look like. And they come in two different colors, like a light tan, that's the one that I ended up with, and a darker brown. So with all of that excitement already, please welcome Simon Parker to the podcast. Simon, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today.
1: Thank you very much. It's, uh, I'm looking forward to Chatting with a, a like-minded person over the course of the next hour should be fun.
0: <laughs> like-minded in that we, we both have sort of an adventure deeply embedded in our souls, I think.
1: I think so. Always just very restless individuals who obviously don't like being sat behind a, uh, a desk, or at least I don't mind being sat behind a desk when I'm writing or editing something which has been fun and I've just been out doing, but I couldn't, I couldn't handle being sat behind a desk for my whole working life.
0: So so a nine to five in the city would not be good for you?
1: No way, no. I think a lot of people have that story of I don't know, I guess, rejecting the rat race and then going off yep. and finding a different life. But uh, my sort of the only real time I did um in central London was in the newsroom and that was actually quite exciting and quite exhilarating. I quite like that. What, but then Was that newspaper out, or that um that or radio was t- TV and radio? Um, so before I became a travel writer, before I went off and sort of do what I do now, I I cut my teeth in, um, in television and radio journalism, working for the BBC, ITN, some other radio stations and, um, kind of learned all the principles, I guess, in journalism there and then decided I really didn't want to be stuck in a newsroom somewhere. And then uh, the rest is history, I guess, being out in the middle of nowhere ever since.
0: Well, that's some pretty decent foundational learning right there. BBC, ITN, I mean, all all the sort of the, the major core networks back home in the UK.
1: Yeah, it's cool. I mean, being able to, when I was, um, when I was about 21, 22, I got my first jobs in journalism and, uh kind of my approach was just to take every shift that was ever offered to me. And I I worked like absolutely crazy. I used to do day shifts onto night shifts, and I would cycle across London and work for one organization and then go into a newsroom and produce another program or report on a, a particular thing. And it was a really intense and stressful time. But it does mean that you get to learn the real sort of solid Founding principles of journalism and, and how to tell a story in quite a, a quick and frantic environment. And when you've got that that rush of adrenaline going through you, I think you you learn a bit faster, really. And then once you learn that storytelling, you can then take that wherever you want, really. Or well, that, that was that's at least the uh, the principle I try to try to live by, I guess. So what
0: had you done prior to that? Because that, that's early twenties, you're starting. Um, in this news and journalism world, but did you have an undergrad or had you been doing other things? What was your your kind of story leading up to that? And what was it that led you to that as an initial jump-off point? As Certainly, if I think of myself, I did a lot of other things in my early 20s. that is nothing like what I was doing now as I was trying to work out what the hell I wanted to do. But you seem to have found it pretty early.
1: Well, okay. So it might sound like that, but uh, it was actually quite a complicated process. Uh, so I, I guess a journey of discovery. So, when I was um, between the age of about fourteen and eighteen, I um, I was a I was a bit of a tearaway of a. Uh, of a teenager, if I'm honest, I won't go into too many details, but I used to engage in lots of things which my uh, my parents and teachers probably would encourage me not to have done. <laughs> and uh, my extracurricular activities were quite um, sort of out there for someone of my age. And um, I think it, it generally boiled down to just being quite restless and bored of being a teenager growing up in North Oxfordshire, surrounded by fields you're still at that age when you couldn't really get into pubs and things like that. So we used to go to nightclubs and things like that. It was strange. You couldn't, go and work, you couldn't go drink in your local pub, but we could go and get fake IDs and go to nightclubs and raves around the country and stuff. So we used to do all that. But when I reached the age of 18, I remember just being absolutely chomping at the bit to get out there and just to really see the world. So I was in two minds I didn't really know what I was meant to do should I go to university or should I go backpacking like most of my mates so I actually decided to to go to university for that first year and it was probably the worst decision I ever made <laughs> um, beca- uh, because I absolutely hated it it just it just really wasn't it really wasn't my thing but I slogged my way through that first year at university and then at the end of that first year I managed to convince my uni that um, that I could defer my studies. So I- um, This sounds
0: like such a familiar story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I I deferred my studies and I bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand. And um, I then spent 18 months hitchhiking around Australia and New Zealand. Um, After those 18 months, I just absolutely knew that I wanted to make travel my life. And thankfully, my university allowed me to go back. And uh, I went back and I really had those those halcyon days really in the forefront of my mind. And I went back, I got first class degree, and then that allowed me to go on to become a journalist and, and do what I do now, travel around the world, which is, um, was, I think it's my dream job. There's nothing really else on the planet I feel like I should be doing.
0: It's funny because I, I did a very similar thing where I, I I made it a little bit past the first year before I decided I really needed to go and explore. So my undergrad was four years and I made the first three. I was like, I, I just, I can't take anymore. I need to go and do something else for a bit. So I went and did that for two years. So sort of similar, like you were away for 18 months. And then with a deferred final year, and then eventually I dragged my ass back to university to to finish and get my do my last year and my honors year, uh, and it was it really does go to that. Well, one I didn't really enjoy what I was doing. I, I end up probably studying the wrong thing in hindsight, looking back. Although. I can see the valuable lessons in, in some of that time and some of the things that I learned. Um, but it, it does go back to this kind of uh, restless uh, soul, I guess, for want of a better word, which I, I know you've talked to, and you mentioned it at the start of the podcast, but you've talked to at some length this idea of of... A certain amount of restlessness and a need to explore. Where, where do you think that comes from? Do you know where it comes from for you? But I mean, obviously, it's not not just you, not just me. There's a lot of people who kind of had that. Not everybody really gets to scratch that itch, and I think it probably causes some problems for them in life uh, over time.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I I think that that's probably being too stifled in your formative teenage years probably has quite a m- big impact on your likelihood of having a, a meltdown in middle age or having one of those midlife crisis, which people talk about. And I guess I was always quite switched on to that. I was I was always from quite a young age aware that, um, you know, life is a finite thing. There's only so many hours in every day and only so many days in every week. And I've always been absolutely obsessed with just trying to maximise what I can get out of my time. Um, at the same time, when I was seventeen, I, I suffered the bereavements of, of several close friends, and um, I've kind of always buried that grief, I think. But I'm, I'm currently writing a book, and I've been exploring some of those those feelings that I felt back then, and. It's been great therapy, I think, because I've been able to to lay some of these feelings on paper for the first time in my life, really. And I think I think I was left with this feeling that you know, if my if these people I grew up with aren't here anymore, I have a, a responsibility to myself, but I also have a responsibility to them to go out and just smash it as much as possible and just have a good crack at life, really. And I think coupled with that that comes from the fact that you know I didn't grow up in central london or anything like that i grew up in a small hamlet in the Cotswolds and there was only really so much that we could do to keep ourselves entertained as as a group of friends to be honest so when i when i reached the age of 18 19 i was just desperate to go out there and see the world really and uh, i've never really looked back but i think maybe the education system or the western education system we have which is very eager to get people along this production line of going in and out of higher education.
0: Oh, has, it feels like a production line. It, it, it does. That's exactly what it feels like. Well, it,
1: I think there are some questions to be answered really by culture and by society about encouraging people to go into academic qualifications, which are probably totally unnecessary. When you look at the, you look at the university system in Britain, and I guess it's even more of a monster in the US. Um, there are so many subjects being studied which probably are completely unnecessary if i'm totally honest all of the the main um principles i learned about being a journalist i learned in the first couple of years of actually just being in the newsroom my degree in english and film studies was a a nonsense really the only (laughs) the only real good it got me was i got a first class degree and it and it gave me that it opened the door opened the door for me but other than that something like journalism you can you can learn it on the job
0: yeah absolutely and that's how people used to learn that and it's it's a difficult one because um you know i see a huge amount of value in education but i think like you're saying you can be get education in many ways it doesn't have to be in a in a formal institution i have recently gone back to university to study a a master's but it's it's exactly the kind of work that I am doing day in and day out anyway. It's, all, it's a, a master's in, in conservation and um, biodiversity, which is what I often podcast about. It's what I write about. It's what I make films about. And being absorbed in an academic uh, sort of framework when it's linked to something that I think about all the time anyway, and I, I really want to understand rather than learn, makes a hell of a difference. And I and I, I think one of the, the problems with a lot of um, undergrad degrees, including my own at the time, is I didn't really know what I was doing because I was pretty young when I left school. I, I had a, some sort of formulation in my mind as to where I wanted to go, but I know now as time has gone on, it, it was... Uh, it was very far removed from the path that I would eventually take. and it's a difficult one because you can't wherever you are in your life, whoever you are, you can't really regret or want to change the things that have happened in your past because you might not be where you are today if you hadn't done those things in the past. Um, but yeah, it was if I was to think back on it, it was it would be and give advice, it would more be. Thinking critically about the kind of life I want to have and speaking to something that you were just saying, really searching for the things that bring you joy and happiness and give you some sort of meaning and purpose. And that I don't think, unless you are a very shallow person, I don't think that will ever be just purely a monetary goal, which I think is how a lot of us pick jobs when we're younger.
1: And that's, unfortunately, that's the sort of topsy-turvy or the the top-heavy nature of life, really, is that you have those realizations, you know, when you're in your 30s or your 40s, expecting children of the age of 17, 18 to decide what they may do for the next 50 years of their life. (laughs) It's a big burden. Yeah, based on you know, what they've learned in a classroom, having not really been out anywhere or seen much, unless you're an incredibly privileged child that gets to go on amazing holidays. For the main part, what experience do you have knowing what sort of life you want to to lead? It's crazy. So actually, if I ever have children one day, I would encourage them to get out there and spend a couple of years just taking opportunities and giving stuff a go and talking to people and living other people's lives for a couple of years before you feel that stress of needing to decide what you're going to do for the best of the rest of your life and i also think especially something like university again it comes at the wrong time you've had children Indoctrinated by education from the age of three or four, all the way up to eighteen, and then you tell them, "Right now, you have to go and do another three or four-year course to become whoever that adult person version of you is going to be." That's a huge amount of pressure, huge amount of stress to put on a human being who has only ever been in the education system. So, I actually think I know it's a great um, cliche, but the greatest lessons I've ever learned from anything have been out just living my life in Um, life so much so much more than anything I've ever picked up in a, a book or a magazine or a documentary just go out and live and see what happens
0: yeah I think if I was to think back at like the 16 17 year old version of me I was in such a rush to get to this arbitrary finish point that it was you know high school go to university get the university degree so that I can get the job but if I could have really seen it the way that I, I see it now, I, I would reinforce what you've just said is that I think there is a lot of value in if you can, if you can find a way to do it and you know try and support yourself, to experience the world for a year, two years, maybe even three years, because by the time you get to, you know, I'm 33 now, but by the time you get to that kind of age, that extra year or two years in the world and feeling like you're not moving a career forward actually doesn't make any difference. It's it's irrelevant. And and, and if you were able to um, sort of short circuit mistakes you might have made in a way, in terms of choices you made, then you've actually saved time. But it's very, very difficult to look at it like that when you're 18 years old.
1: Yeah, totally. I'm 33 as well, and we're we're already talking like uh, fuddy-duddy. Like 60 year old. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so easy for us to sit here right now and say these things, but I had all those same insecurities that any other 17 or 18-year-old must have now. I can't, I don't, I'm not particularly aware of what the image of backpacking and um, travel is right now i don't know how things have changed in the 15 years since i first i guess right
0: now nobody's doing any of it well yeah no no one is (laughs) sadly
1: anything now however um, i remember when i remember when i decided to go off i think there was a little bit of a stigma associated with travel when i was going off backpacking that it was just a complete dos waste of time yeah yeah yeah
0: I yeah, I, i would agree with that yeah.
1: And actually there was an element of that because the I guess the the backpacker route for a Brit was you know Thailand uh it was you know Thailand for a couple of months get absolutely wasted for you know on a beach and then go and do the same in Australia and then go to uh, university that was kind of the trail. I don't really know what people what people you know of, of of school leaving age are doing these days but actually I do feel immensely sorry for that whole generation of this couple of years, this weird couple of years of, of young people who've missed out on that that great ability to go out and see the world with such fresh eyes because I know, I know how hard it's been for us or people my sort of age, but as someone who was 16, 17, 18, desperate to get out and see the world and then for all of a sudden that one opportunity to be taken away from you because the whole world has closed down you never know if that's going to have huge ramifications to a, a whole generation of, of kids in 10, 20 years time, you never got to go out and spread their wings like that.
0: Yeah, well, we're, we're just gonna have to, we're just gonna have to see, I guess. Uh, I know, certainly, you read the the articles and the stories and newspapers about people at university. And I don't think that's been a really a great uni- uh, experience for them. I, I think if I had was at that position where I had left school in the you know, whatever it is July last year in the middle of pandemic with a view to going to university in the September. There's no way I would have gone. I think it was a terrible decision <laughs> to go and do your first year of university in the middle of a pandemic. I would have tried to, you know, do something else, even though there was very limited things that you could do being locked down. But I just, um universities were not set up for it and i just think that the experiences have been stifled somewhat
1: i think they've got quite a lot to answer for as well to be honest as organizations because they actively encouraged or many of them actively encouraged their students to to come to university and to begin their studies knowing could have taken an educated guess that uh, there wouldn't have been any contact times and and people would have been doing their lessons from their dorms, what's the point in paying goodness knows how many thousands of pounds a year to go and... To sit in your prison cell. Sit in your prison cell. Why aren't you yeah. doing that at home at the very least? Because university really isn't cheap. Uh, no. So you, it, if you go into something like that, you have to know that it's going to be a good investment for your future. Because life is a massive bottleneck. We all know that. As soon as all of these students come out of university, there's for any profession, there's going to be... A hundred people for every one job, at least the good professions, anyway.
0: Yeah, that's very true. So, tell me, once you had this amazing foundation with these uh, you know, very high-profile uh, news and journalism and networks, what was the um, what was the thing that pushed you to say, "Okay, I'm going to go and do this by myself now"? And, and what was the first journey that you took?
1: So. I used to work um, lots and lots of shifts in the, um, in the newsrooms of central London, as I said, and I used to take on whatever I could. And I remember one weekend, it must have been a Sunday morning, and I was on the news desk in, um, in a newsroom in London. And I remember that my job was to edit reports that were coming in from journalists all over the world. And these feeds of material used to come into us via our computers and via our servers. And I used to put them into a timeline and then cut them up and, um, and make reports that would go out on the news, on websites, uh, that sort of thing. And I remember just thinking to myself, why am I working myself to the, to the bone, trying to save up enough money in here to be able to afford to go traveling when what I could (laughs) ultimately do is try and be the person on the other end sending back this material. So I remember I was working on a news program, and one of my editors was doing a little bit of travel writing for The Telegraph, and I said to him, you know, this is my absolute dream job. have you got an email? Could I, um, could I perhaps send them a couple of ideas? So I, I sent uh, an idea to uh, one of the editors and thankfully he got back to me, but he said to me, I think I remember quite clearly he said, these are good ideas, but we have absolutely no ideas, idea if you're capable of writing. So I sent him, um, I sent him a story about hiking through the Colca Canyon in Southern Peru, um, which I'd done a couple of years before. And I I'd seen, um, condors circling over the top of Cork Canyon. So I wrote it it up as a um, 1,500 word story. And he emailed me a couple of weeks later and said, do you want to go for a beer? And we went for a beer and he said to me, I'm going to publish this in a couple of weeks time. And then that was my first break into travel writing, which was about seven or eight years ago now. And then since then, I've just tried to just um, kind of keep that that snowball moving forward, really, by just picking other stuff up and, and yeah, just trying to live my dream as a travel writer, really.
0: How do you find, especially now, if I'm thinking about myself and, you know, we unfortunately, despite the kind of the sexiness of traveling around the world and telling these stories, whether we're filming or recording audio for radio or writing stuff that's been really hard to do in the last 18 months. And we have to worry about the boring things like, is there money coming into the bank? How do you f- find the precariousness, generally speaking, of a very freelance life?
1: Yeah, it's strange. I, there have been times over the course of the last 10 years that I have worried about not having enough money because for example, it's strange. I guess it's very similar to what you do there will be some months when I earn quite a lot of money, and then there'll be other months when I earn zero money. It's just the nature of the gig economy, I guess. Um, and um, but you know what? I find I actually I find it quite exhilarating in a strange way. I find that you have to be as prolific as possible. You have to generate as many ideas as possible to try and make a living. And I think that appeals to the way I want to live my life. I, I want to. I want to produce a lot of content. I want to produce as many good ideas as possible. I would suspect that if you were on staff somewhere and you were working as a staff journalist, perhaps, I'm not sure, but I would suspect that if you were getting a salary, there may be the inclination to spend, I don't know, a whole week working on a feature as opposed to one day if you're freelance. Um, But I quite like it. I enjoy that exhilarating nature of the business if i'm totally honest
0: yeah i can see that and and yeah outside of uh, these kind of crazy times that we're living in right now in the in the last year uh, it it is very much the case that you get to reap the rewards of the work you put in where i don't think that is always true when you're in a more um, structured regimented office or staff type environment
1: the cool thing that I enjoy about my job is I only ever work on things that I'm interested in. So
0: that's that's the dream right there, though, isn't yeah,
1: it? I'm I'm pitching ideas to newspapers and TV networks and radio shows, ideas that I'm already really, really interested in, and then Makes I just try difference. and I just try and convince other people that this is. The interesting for many, many people. Whereas I remember when I I used to do more solid shifts in the newsrooms, I used to turn up in the morning and and the editor would give me a story to work on. And by the end of the day, I'd just be so bored of whatever I'd been put on. And that sort of journalism is using these, these black and white skills to create a certain product at the end of the day. Whereas what I do now I might be doing a story on, I don't know, hiking for condors in Colca Canyon or trekking through the Himalaya or goodness knows what. But these things are things that I would be wanting to do with my life anyway. And it just feels like this immense privilege that at the end of that, I get to turn those experiences into things that make me some money, or at least you know keep a roof partially over my head. Saying that... <laughs> This this year has been tough. It has been very tough for travel writers. It's been very tr- tough for filmmakers and radio documentaries. But the one thing I think that has played in my favour is that I've already travelled quite extensively before this pandemic happened. So because there is such a huge appetite for travel content, I find that I can write stuff about things happening around the world at any one time. I've been to over half the countries in the world now. So let's just say, I don't know, a story's breaking about Sherpas in the Himalaya. I've been there and I've I've got contacts there. So for example, if the telegraph wanted a thousand words on what the situation's like there. I know what it's like, I know what it feels like, I know what it looks like. Yeah, you've
0: like. lived it and breathed it a bit. And yeah. It makes a huge difference in creating any kind of content if you actually have on the ground experience. And, yeah, that is, and, I, you, and you're can, right, it is a big difference that. So,
1: so even though I'm not on location, there is a massive appetite for travel content these days, which is just, I guess, third person sort of stuff, which is where the destination is very much in, in focus. And the, and the location is very much in focus, and um, yeah, thankfully, I've been to so many places over the course of the last decade that I can turn my attention to some things and at least at least make ends meet for a little bit longer as we're going through this this pandemic. But I, I don't think it's going to be too long before we can get back to business.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I'm. I, I think. Any kind of estimation is always going to be a guess with a fairly large margin of error, but I would hope that by the time we get to kind of August, things are going to be a bit better. Certainly, it looks like uh, for those of us who are in the UK, all adults apparently are going to be vaccinated by then. Uh, the only my you know my biggest concern. I was just speaking to a friend of mine the other day, in, in terms of like the immediate future. And he was trying to, with the current restrictions that we have up in Scotland, he was trying to very legitimately go and work because he's a freelance photographer. It's like, well, if you want me to not have any money to feed myself, then uh, fine, I will just sit in my house, but I have to work. And so he was very legitimately under the rules that we have trying to fly out to Scandinavia, where he had all the paperwork in place to go and work. And British Airways stopped him flying. He eventually had to go and um, take a train down to London to fly with a different airline to get in. and They, they had actually no right to stop from flying because he had everything in place. And I, I read something in the paper um, a couple of days ago, I think on the BBC, I think they were specifically talking about something the Scottish government had said, so I don't know how applicable this will be to the UK-wide, um, that the kind of travel restrictions that we're seeing now will be in place or are very likely to be in place until the end of the year there becomes a point where we just can't work anymore
1: yeah i think and it's worrying uh, i think we'll be will there will be travel restrictions associated with coronavirus for at least 2 or 3 years to some degree i think i think i was i, I went on a big walk through the snow earlier and uh, I, I, I always go down a rabbit hole of thinking about something and yeah i was thinking about how things may pan out in the next couple of years and i i i think masks Will be mandatory on public transport for two or three years. I'd be amazed if all of a sudden we were allowed to just stop wearing masks and things like that. But you know what? Actually, in a strange way, this last year, as a travel writer, in which we've been going through this weekly travel corridor fiasco in terms of one week you're allowed to go somewhere and then the borders are closed. And then, uh, so it's actually been. Ch- it's actually been quite good for the creative process because it actually centers your attention. So for example, in any one week, let's say before Christmas, there may only be 30 travel corridors between the UK and the rest of the world. And it means that I would either head off on a really quick turnaround trip. To, uh, for example, just before Christmas, I went to Costa Rica because the borders were open with Costa Rica. A couple of weeks before that, there was a travel corridor announced with Namibia. So I wrote a piece all about Namibia. In an, un, in a normal year, I've got 200 countries available to me. And it can be a little bit dizzying at time, not knowing where I should focus my attention but actually in a strange way in the last year it's actually made travel writing a little bit more focused and a little bit more topical and current and newsy because there's been something to actually write about other than these quite arbitrary um sort of news pegs to go to a place or do something there
0: Yeah, I can see that. And I think that's a a very uh, glass-half-full way of looking at it, actually. I I like that. I think the only thing I'd add to that is that that is – and I agree with you. It does focus the mind the issue that i've had recently or the thing that i've been wrestling with and i don't want anybody listening to this to think that i don't te- i am not taking the situation so i am t- taking it extremely seriously and i have had you know friends who have b- been very close to dying as a result of this so i'm not taking it lightly but i wrestle with this idea that it's it's one thing for a country that is not your country saying we're not allowing people in i mean that's fine it's a very another thing for the, your own country that you live in not allowing you to leave and i yeah. find that really uncomfortable i've and um, it, like yeah. actually scary that we we're in a situation where you it's almost impossible to leave the uk right now to get to 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 leave our borders
1: yeah i'm lucky i've um, well i've given up on that idea for a couple of months to be honest i'm, I'm burying mm-hmm. myself in other projects at the moment but yeah and and we've actually We've done a lot of stuff on that at the Telegraph in terms of okay. arguing about, you know, the rules that are in place and if they're fair. And I've I've done several columns about how the rules that have been placed upon British people have been a bit over the top, if I'm totally honest. I understand personally the the need to curb an, an infectious disease, and, and I understand that there are, there are some things that we should all be doing to prevent that, but I think at, at times, those draconian measures have been a little bit overboard, if I'm totally honest, and, I, and I, think, I think there's a great fatigue for all those rules now. I think everyone is just getting so fed up with it. it we just want it to be over as quickly as possible, and that's not just... A you know, privileged travel writer who's desperate to go off and do stuff. There is just this quite quite cagey and fractious sort of atmosphere in Britain now, um which just feels sort of a bit strange um, ready yeah, for it and to I, go over. I think
0: it's fostered this kind of distrust between government and the people that they're supposed to serve. And I think it's been based on the actions of some really inconsiderate assholes, actually, who are having parties and that kind of thing. But if we look at the current restrictions of getting home right now for countries which are not on the the red list of thirty odd countries that have the South African potentially have the South African variant, and if I look at Scotland in particular, where they are wanting to implement full enforced hotel quarantine that you're going to have to pay for, even if you're a British national, even if you have a home to go to. And that is like, so you're not even trusting your own population to land home, having been away legitimately and go and sit in their house for 10 days and get tested. If we can't trust people as a society to do the right thing, obviously there will always be people who break those rules. I'm not sure how you move forward. If there's no trust at all. And you're having to essentially imprison people because that is what they're doing in
1: enforced in quarantine. Well, the problem is, is that with something like this, and I'm no amateur um, epidemiologist, I think it only takes a very small minority for the virus to get out of control. And, and, that's, and that's, that's true. The, and that is the problem is that 99.9% of us can be trusted. But it is those people who decide to have a, a house party of you know four hundred people or something, and then and then the rest of us get tarred with the same brush. That's the problem. But the so the the gist of some of the the columns I've been writing is that actually the rules have got a little bit out of hand because we all understand the need to stay away from big groups. We understand that we shouldn't be congregating in people's homes or. Or mixing like that. But in Britain, the criminalization of going out for a walk or going into a national park or going out on a bike ride for more than ten miles per hour, uh, uh, ten miles from your home, is is really just, in my opinion, just taking things to a totally different level. And actually that that kind of um, philosophy, which is um, seeped out through government, drips down through all of society and that's why you've ended up in britain especially with this very tetchy environment of people dobbing their neighbours in for going out on two dog it's walks it's like 1984 it's it, it, is, it yeah and sometimes you do have to just winston winston <laughs> yeah exactly we've all just become these proles um it's crazy sometimes you know in a strange way i have i've found the whole thing quite amusing because some of the, the way people have behaved this year is just a crazy situation. You could have ever imagined the way some people would have behaved during all of this and the, the sort of environment we've created for ourselves. I, I, th- I honestly think it's going to take a generation to get over.
0: Yeah, you're probably right. Well, maybe we can help people escape from because when this when this goes out in a week or two, we're still going to be in exactly the same situation that we're in right now as we're recording this. So maybe we can help people escape in their minds by talking about two of your really big adventures. Um, starting off with your your trip from China to London, which was back in 2016. Tell me about that uh, that story and the output that that you generated as a result of it. Who you were who you were reporting for and and uh, how, it, how it began.
1: Yeah, so back in 2015, I became aware of something called the Clipper Round the World Yacht Race. Uh, absolutely. It's yeah. the, um, the world's largest circumnavigation of the planet. Uh, 12 identical yachts crewed by um, a mixture of uh, a professional skipper and amateur sailors so i approached my editor at the telegraph and i said this is really interesting i wonder if we've ever done a piece on this about the training process associated with um, with getting on this race and i was commissioned to go off and do a story all about a training week on on clipper so i did it this one week and then i started thinking to myself i wonder if i could convince them to let me go on and do a leg of this and um the Telegraph, um, thankfully, were interested in in the story too. So I embarked on this uh, this four week four weeks of compulsory training, and then um, and then I um, decided to take on the hardest possible leg that they had, uh, despite not being a sailor by any wild stretch of the imagination. And I, I really knew it was going to be terrible. And uh, yeah, I. Um, I went off and I I was in the the Pacific leg of the 2016 race. So, so rough involved, seas. Oh, I mean crazy seas. This was, you know, you're surfing down you're surfing down waves the size of mountains. It is just, you know, the center of the Pacific Ocean is just somewhere that human beings just are not meant to go to. And um yes, I um I sailed across the Pacific in the in the race and I knew that I was going to get from one side of uh, the Pacific to the other. And I started to just dream up this concept for a um, for a project in which I wanted to sail and cycle halfway around the world. And these ideas always seem simpler when they're on paper. But uh, I dreamt up this idea to sail with the round-the-world yacht race. And then on the other legs, where they were s- sailing around America, I raced them from Seattle all the way to New York, and <laughs> wow! And this adventure became a uh, hundred and thirty-three days, and I travelled fifteen thousand miles from from China all the way back to London across land and sea.
0: That's incredible! It did was. You, awesome. Did you beat them?
1: So basically, um, it took us thirty days to get from Seattle uh, from China to Seattle, and then um, at that point the fleet of yachts was about to race from Seattle to New York around America via the Panama Canal. So I grabbed my bike in Seattle and it took me 48 days to cycle across America. And I arrived It seems
0: incredibly fast.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean I was really pushing it. I mean I you you would probably want to do it over let's say three months to really enjoy it. But I was probably pushing 70 miles a day. And uh I beat them. I beat them to New York by uh by twelve hours, which was awesome.
0: Well, it's just like a top gear episode, but without cars.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I quite like <laughs> quite that like element. And the um the documentary I made for the BBC was exploring the difference between team and solo endurance. Oh, so okay. when I was sailing across the Pacific, I was looking at how the agendas and the the thought process going on behind people and why they wanted to do this race and how intense it was being in a a really hardcore environment surrounded by other people in this in this pressure cushion, uh, pressure cook, uh, in this pressure cooker environment and then when i went uh, on dry land i grabbed my bike and then i set off on this journey on my own and then sort of started to think about what it was like being on my own and then the pressures on me as an individual without a team so it was a really fascinating project i was totally not cut out for the open ocean i don't mind saying that i am an absolutely useless sailor i I was horrendously seasick for day after day after day i was just totally rubbish at sailing but then i did start to realize that i do really love being on my bike i love being on the open road with my panniers and a tent and a sleeping bag and heading off for a couple of months at a time is an amazing feeling of freedom
0: so i guess that that experience that's 2016 um, was the basis for your more recent Earth Cycle, knowing that you wanted to be on a bike and that was something that you could really get your teeth into and enjoy and tell stories with. So, what what was the journey from um, this this race across North America to Earth Cycle and documenting that?
1: So, I did this four thousand mile bike ride across the U.S. and as I was cycling through Ohio on this very specific warm summer's day in Ohio. I was surrounded by millions of cicadas. In, in Britain, we pronounce it cicada, but these small insects, uh, which emerge from the ground every 17 years on just one day, it's an
0: amazing cycle,
1: incredible. And I was going through, and these um, these cicadas were all around me. And I remember pitching the story to the BBC's from our own correspondent, which is uh, a kind of a flagship program on Radio Four, and they commissioned me to do a story all about how the locals were feeling and what it was like in Ohio on this day that this swarm of cicadas emerged into the um, into the environment around them as i kept cycling i just started thinking about a potential idea about what it would be like to go off on big journeys around the world while simultaneously trying to chart the seasonal cycles of the natural world around me so i started dreaming up this this premise for a program, really. And by the time I made it to New York, I had in my head this skeleton of an idea for a program called Earth Cycle. And the premise of Earth Cycle is to go off on big journeys around the world while trying to simultaneously shine a light on interesting, green, sustainable travel stories. So, yeah, I dreamt up the first season of Earth Cycle, which is currently on Amazon Prime and various broadcasters around the world. And the first series we shot on a 2,000 mile bike ride through Scandinavia, through Sweden and Norway. And it was just one of the most incredible experiences.
0: Just watching the the trailer, which is is on YouTube, um, Earth Cycle uh, Europe's Extreme North, the variety of experiences that you had on the way, it just looks like the kind of things that I wanna go and do and spend my weekends doing anyway.
1: Yeah, it was awesome. So basically, I um, I cycled from the very northernmost point of Europe, the North Cape, right up at the top of Norway, and then zigzagged all the way down to a place called Smigahook, which is the southernmost point of the Scandinavian peninsula in Sweden. And basically, I would cycle for maybe 50 or 60 miles a day. And then in the afternoon, I'd meet a conservationist or a biologist or someone interesting with an interesting take on the natural world around them. So I remember when I was in Lapland, we did um, a day filming with uh, a Sami uh, Sami herdsman who told me all about how the northern lights were very important to his culture. I met uh, a, a group of conservationists who were trying to preserve a very endangered bee species that they put on an island off the coast of Sweden and the the unique problems associated with this um, with this species. In the swirling Arctic Ocean, I went out with a, a fisherman who was fishing for invasive king crabs. And we went out and pulled up these lobster pots and pulled in all these huge ginormous they are massive. five kilo crabs. And it, that's the sort of story we want to try and intertwine with just me being on a bicycle because there's only so much I think a viewer can really handle some bloke on a bike talking about himself going from place to place. That gets very boring very quickly. So as a journalist, I want to make sure that I'm meeting other people and and finding out other things because although you may have the skeleton of an idea as a journalist, you need the real meat on the bones to give it some substance. And hopefully with Earth Cycle, we managed to achieve that.
0: How did you find um, Scandinavian communities and their links and interaction with the more natural environment compared to being back at home? Because I've spent a bit of time in Scandinavia, and I I really enjoy it there, and I really enjoy spending time with the people there. And, And a lot of that has to do with their interaction with the great outdoors.
1: Yeah, I think it's very different to Britain. Uh, or at least, if there is, um, you know, one synergy, there is the the um, connection between Scotland and the right to Rome and then what they also have in in Scandinavia. So, growing up in England, I was used to everything being divided, the natural world around me being divided up. In England, is just this place full of passive-aggressive signage telling you where, <laughs> where you can and can't go. You you know you have to stick to footpaths. Uh, this is a bridal way. Don't go any further. No dogs off, off leads, that sort of thing. Whereas in somewhere like Scandinavia, even though people, of course, do own the land, there is this amazing thing called the right to roam, which allows people to share the great outdoors. And if you are respectful of that and you leave no trace – it is completely in your right as another human being to pitch your tent and enjoy being out there. So actually for something like earth cycle in which we're really trying to promote being outside enjoying the natural cycles of the the natural world around you, Scandinavia was the perfect place to do that and actually Scandinavians in general want to share that philosophy with visitors. They're very proud of 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 their open source management of the great outdoors, and hopefully it's something that may be able to catch on in in the US or in the UK. But unfortunately, historically, we come from a background of of lordship of of ownership, which they don't so much have in Scandinavia.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with all of that, and I think the other part. That was that. There was very no, noticeable to me. Was. Their understanding and connection when it came to food and the sort of unapologetic view that they had of of harvesting and using food in a sustainable manner from the land, whether that be big community hunting schemes for moose up in the north or whether that be fishing off the coast, it was much more the norm to see people gathering mushrooms to be eating reindeer or eating moose than it would be at home for people to even eat venison and we have you know we have a lot of venison at home but it's it's not that normalized and it's certainly not that normalized if you're talking about actually doing those activities to harvest that stuff yourself
1: yeah that was very um integral to what we wanted to try and capture in the program was people living close to nature close to the seasonality of the natural world around them so for example i cycled the length of scandinavia at just as autumn, just as summer was crossing over into autumn, so I think it was late August through to the beginning of October, and that's a really bountiful time to be out and about in terms of the seasonal berries in the Arctic, the the mushrooms. Uh, migrating salmon that sort of thing is a really amazing time and and actually i think it must be down to a certain extent to population in terms of population density because sweden and norway have a huge amount of space for a very small population whereas something uh, we, i mean of course we would love britain to have all those characteristics but actually the more i travel the more i realize how densely populated and Dare I say, overpopulated Britain actually is. There are sixty-five million people squeezed into what is quite a small area. So, although and
0: sixty of that's in England, or or maybe not quite sixty, but we only have five in Scotland.
1: Exactly. But for example, it's very easy for people like us to eulogise about you know wild camping and things like that, but we don't take into consideration the fact that actually there are there are probably too many of us to enjoy. the the great outdoors responsibly and it just takes a few people to turn up in the lake district and not put their tents away (laughs) to actually yeah to actually look probably a lot more significant than it actually is because we're sharing a much smaller space among significantly more of us so um, i would love to go and live up in northern scandinavia I, i generally hate the winter but There is something about the Scandinavian winter in general that is just so crisp and so honest and so raw, which I I think I could actually very much enjoy.
0: I need to get back to Scandinavia. When when things normalize again, I've got a few friends there. I need to get back uh, back to Norway and Sweden. And I've spent a bit of time in Finland as well. And uh, I love all those countries. So that'll, that's pretty high on my list, actually, to get back there once things get back to normal.
1: That's an amazing place. Amazing people, amazing um, landscapes, um, a huge amount to like.
0: Simon just as we're getting towards the the end of our conversation is there anything uh, that you are working on that's coming out soon that you have the ability to tell us about or are all your new projects other than your book um, kind of under wraps until they're not
1: yeah so what I've learned from the last year is that I have to try and generate ideas that are pandemic proof to a certain extent so In summer last year, I was getting really fed up with all of my international projects being cancelled. I had so many interesting things lined up. I was meant to be going to do um, a source-to-sea expedition of the Zambezi, which was going to take a couple of months. Tremendous. And... uh, And that got called off. So I was really annoyed about that. And I had so many other interesting projects. So I I was just feeling so restless and and down on my luck, really. So before Christmas um, in October, I I dreamt up this idea to cycle the length of Britain during the pandemic. And it became a six-part article and video series for The Telegraph. And I cycled the the length of Britain all the way from the northernmost point of Shetland down to the... um, The southernmost point of England. So that became the six-part series and I'm hoping it it may become the first half of uh, a book I'm currently working on at the moment. But um, I'm excited to reveal and quite scared to reveal that I've actually decided to go off and do it all again. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I felt like I left quite a little bit of unfinished business out on the road. I feel like there's still so much more to, to discover. So in spring, hopefully, as soon as um, as soon as Britain opens up a little bit, I'm going to go back down to Lands End, and I'm going to cycle all the way back up to the northernmost point of Shetland, and that's hopefully going to become the second half of a book. And the Telegraphs also told me they're going to take a second series on it, and oh, that that's will, brilliant. That will involve me um, covering another 1,700 miles on my bike and just trying to explore how Britain is feeling at a time of crisis. And what I love about being out on massive journeys on my bicycle as a journalist is I get to pick up things. I become so much more aware of the world around me in a way that turning up with a a film crew with microphones and expensive cameras just wouldn't ever really allow us to do. So Yeah, there is um, something about that. In spring, I'm going to be heading out to, to finish the loop, and it, it will become around 3,000 miles in total. So that's, that's what I'm preparing for now.
0: If people want to follow what you're, you're up to on an ongoing basis, do you, what are your um, social handles and, and website and best places to keep up with you?
1: Yeah, so um, Twitter and Instagram is at Simon W.I. Parker. Um, all of my sort of back catalogue of stuff is on my website, simonwparker.co.uk, and I'm, I'm always interested to hear from people, people who want to collaborate on projects or people who are just interested in talking about travel. I think um, over the years, I've, I've learned that it is a really collaborative industry, and it's important that people like you and I reach out to each other and chat about stuff and actually hopefully you know you never know what may happen in the future one of us may have an interesting project and say hey i need someone need some help with this and, yeah. and that's um, how the world works and that's, it's the, actually, be- that's
0: it's, the that's the that's one of my favorite things about it
1: exactly and and um this time actually this enforced lockdown being sat at home has allowed me to really have time to to chat with people like yourself so it's, it's been um it's been refreshing in that in that respect but Hopefully, a few more months. I'm absolutely eager to get back on the road and, and tell more stories.
0: Well, I'm I'm really pleased that you had the time to chat and bring this conversation to all the listeners today. So, thank you very much um, for today, Simon. It's been it's been great to talk with you.
1: It's my pleasure. Happy travels to everyone listening. And uh, yeah, like I say, feel free to drop me a line on um, social media. It's good to chat.